wasting time You found me just in time Before you came my time was running up I was lost The losing dice were tossed My bridges all were crossed Nowhere to go Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm examining his 2008 collection of short stories most likely to be adapted into a movie starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, just after sunset. As you know, King releases at least one collection of short stories every decade, um, which began with 1978's Night Shift, followed by Skeleton Crew in 1985, Nightmares and Dreamscapes in 1993, and Everything's Eventual in 2002. A short six years later, here he is with another publication of shorts, so how's it stack up against the rest? Well, I prefer his other ones to this. Uh, now, when it comes to short story publications, you can't really complain. There's always going to be some good ones and some bad ones. Um, it's just that with this particular entry, there, there aren't as many memorable ones that stand out to me personally, with the exception of N, which I find horrifying and incredibly well done, and I can't wait to start talking about that particular short story. Um, now, if you have listened to my previous reviews of his short story collections, you'll know how this works. I'm just going to examine a handful of the short stories rather than all of them. And the shorts that I'm going to review this week are as follows. The Gingerbread Girl, N, The Cat from Hell, and A Very Tight Place. Now, for those of you who um, are a little upset that I'm not reviewing more of the short stories within Just After Sunset... Uh, Please note that I will, um, well, I just finished reading The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. I just put it down about an hour and a half ago, which is his 2015 collection of short stories. And I am proud to announce that I will be reviewing every single short story in that particular collection when I release my review of The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And I guess the, 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 the bright side is for every short story that I don't touch now, it's more likely that I'll wind up doing a, another episode down the road with uh, with more reviews of short stories from the collections that I never covered the first time around. So I apologize now, but hopefully I'll be able to get around to the, the other short stories at a later date. So before I begin my review, I would just like to read a listener email because as you guys know by now, I love getting listener emails and I can't do it without you. So I definitely want to share your Stephen King thoughts and experiences with the, the whole world because it can't be just me. And if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And um, if you haven't done so, uh, head on over to iTunes and write a review, which would really, really help me out. Um, just it, it just helps get the, the word out there about the Stephen King cast. Currently, I have 50, 50 reviews uh, on iTunes, which, hey, you know, it might not it might not be a lot in terms of all of the podcasts out there in the world, but in 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 the the realm of Stephen King podcasts, that's pretty awesome. So thank you everyone who has been kind enough to, you know, give a rating and 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 to write a review and to anyone that enjoys listening once a week, sometimes more than once a week. Um, you know, if you have time, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. So thank you everyone. So in the meantime, I'm gonna read a listener email. This one is from Brett, and Brett writes. Hello again. I'm kind of hoping you'll read this email on one of your shows, though if you do, it might be a while till I hear it, as I'm still in the earliest of King of the Kings with your podcasts. In fact, I just finished Cujo, the Cujo show, and I have a bone to pick with you. See what I did there? Get ready. Cujo is one of my favorite books of all time, and it's in my top five for Stephen King books. As I've mentioned earlier, I am almost done doing a thorough and complete chronological reading of all of the King works with only four books left to go. Once I read those four books, I can say to the world, I've read it all. But anyway, my love of Cujo started as soon as I read it when I was a little kid. I think eight years old. Wow. Wow. Uh, I started very early, and The Shining was the first king I read, and I remember this greatly disturbing. My third grade teacher, and she mentioned it to me, and our reply was something sassy like, 
I'm not reading effing go dog go. But anyway, I loved it as an eight-year-old boy and have returned to it time and time again. I read it before watching the film, but I got the film right afterwards and also loved that. I think this is not hyperbole, but I know if people hear this, they might be like, this dude is crazy. That Dee Wallace and Danny Pintaro in the movie give the two greatest performances in the history of motion picture. I love that movie so much that I even wrote to both of them, and they wrote back. Dee Wallace was very kind and answered all of my stupid questions, and so did Danny Pintaro. It was an amazing moment for me. That's pretty cool. But I thoroughly enjoyed your review because you did such a solid job of explaining your problems with the text. I totally understand your reasonings, but for me personally, I've just always dug stories and fiction that are dark, horrible, and make you want to kill yourself when you're done. My favorite movies are the ones that end with everything shitty, everyone's sad, roll credits. You ever see Brian De Palma's Blowout? That's one of my favorite movies because when it's over and the credits start rolling, you immediately start reaching for a rope to hang yourself. That's the way I want to feel when a movie is over. And as a book, Cujo succeeds in doing that. You feel like Stephen King or Richard Bachman because, let's face it, Richard effing Bachman wrote this book and it was just released as a Stephen King book, don't you think? I completely agree 100%. Is just taking a big dump on you and his characters and everyone. It's so hopeless, so pessimistic, and so awful, and that's how I like it. So basically what we have here is just different tastes. I haven't gotten to your movie review of Cujo yet, but I'm eager to. Just so you know, I'm listening to your shows in order as well, so it shall be a while until I catch up. I'm curious to find out if you like the film more or less, or if you have the same problems with it. You do such a good job that even when I 100% disagree with you, as with Cujo, the book, I totally understand and respect your opinion and like listening to it. Now here are just a few of my stupid king opinions if you want to share them on your show. The stand in either 1978 or 1990 edit, or even that 1981 paperback version that takes place in 1985 and changes payday candy bars to Milky Ways, is my favorite King book and my favorite book of all time. It comes back in second place. Or it comes in in second place. I was delighted with 1122.63, and I am placing it third on his roster, and seriously considering putting it at number two, or maybe even number one, because I loved it so much, but for the moment, I'm leaving it at number three. So I'm going to insert myself right now. Now, um, uh, Brett, I just want to let you know that I just finished rereading 1122.63 last week, and I'm going to be recording my review of it, right after I finish my review of of just after just after sunset and it will be coming out in the next couple weeks but I uh rereading 112263 man I got really really into it so I really enjoy your assessment of placing it at number three and even if you want to place it at number two I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you because it is it is very well done and as you'll as you'll see in my review it's probably his most emotional uh, novel that that he has has written and I feel it's definitely by far his most romantic the love story in that is. It's the one that I think he he just he nails more than than any other love story he's given us so far. Even the uh, the very personal to him Lisi story. But anyway, I'm I'm stepping out again, and Brett is taking over. I was overwhelmed by the Dark Tower saga, and I find it hilarious that you called Cujo a barely 300-page book way too long, but seemed to love the Dark Tower, which goes on forever and clearly had no master plan, making it go totally bonkers in the latter books and ending well ending although for all that which sounds like complaining i actually enjoyed um the dark towers five six and seven way more than the first four books which everyone seems to prefer win through the keyhole was um a book (laughs) it exists and i think the world basically is exactly the same with or without it existing and i agree a lot of people consider the dark tower saga to be 7.5 novels or eight i don't i think that it is seven books um and the wind through the keyhole is just supplemental text um i truly despised under the dome and think it's the worst king book the worst book king has ever written or will ever write i hated it it's the only book in my entire life that i've hated and it was 1100 pages can't believe people like it or that anyone would bother to make it a show a shitty show from what i hear um the other contenders for his bottom five would be christine the talisman the tommy knockers cell was also pretty lame but at least inoffensive 
Finally, since this email is getting so long, I'll give a few of my fave movies from his books. I think De Palma's Carrie is the best King movie ever made and one of the greatest movies of all time. I also, of course, love Kubrick's The Shining and would say that King's 1997 The Shining miniseries is one of the worst abortions ever put on film. I threw up in my mouth when I got to the afterword in Doctor Sleep and King, first off, again insults Kubrick's Shining, saying, a movie people have always found terrifying for reasons I don't understand, and then goes on to call Mick Garris's Psycho 4 brilliant. I thought King stopped using drugs around 1991. Where is this nonsense coming from? I also love the films The Dead Zone, Cujo, Stand By Me, Misery, and Shawshank, although that one gets way overhyped. Oh yeah, and Firestarter Rekindled, starring Malcolm McDowell as Rainbird, was so funny that I almost peed my pants laughing. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but also one of the greatest works of genius ever in some crazy way. I've never laughed harder at a movie. Really enjoying your show and will be a constant listener as long as it exists. You do fine work and I am listening to it every day. Kind of glad I waited a year to get into it because it means I can just power through your shows now. Love, Brett. Brett, thank you so much for writing in. I really appreciate it. Really good thoughts. Um, Never met anyone that uh, started reading Stephen King as early as you did. I think that you you take the cake for, for that. And like I said, everyone, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com because I would definitely love to hear from you. Okay, now it's time for my review of Just After Sunset. So I'm going to begin with the introduction. In the introduction to Everything's Eventual, King owned up to the fact that he's almost said everything there is to say about writing short stories. Keep in mind that he had by that point written on writing so we've come a long way from the young writer who tried on the ghostly robe of the Crypt Keeper in Night Shift. By the way, uh, well, well, just I, I can't help, and I, I don't know if I've said this or not yet, but whenever I mention Night Shift, um, I, I, I just, of all of the musical introductions to the episode to this podcast, the intro for Night Shift, um, the Night Shift review might be my favorite. And I have had... That song stuck in my head since I released it in, in what, September? September of 2014? I mean, it's not a bad song to have stuck in your head. Um, but anyway, uh, with Just Under Sunset, or Just After Sunset, uh, King brings us back, you know, way back to the days pre-Carrie when he and Tabby were struggling young parents living dirt poor and trying to make it work. Now, if you want to get a glimpse of what their life was like, I strongly recommend taking Stu's Stephen King tour of Bangor, which you can find at sk-tours.com. Stu will take you to their old domicile, uh, which might be the same area that served as the inspiration for Bev Marsh's house uh, in It, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, but find out one way or another by heading on over to sk-tours.com. You will not be disappointed. Anyway, as you know, I love the introductions to these uh, these collections of short stories. There's such a great window into the heart of the author. It's what makes the relationship between the author and readers so personal, and one of the reasons why he's beloved by his readers. He never hides from us. He doesn't pretend that he's anything other than Stephen King. He doesn't put on airs. He doesn't adopt a different persona. It feels like Stephen King the writer is exactly the same as Stephen King the person, which might sound like a foolish observation, but... With writers, they can take themselves too seriously. Stephen King takes his craft seriously. He takes his work seriously. But he never seems to take himself seriously. I think that that's one of his more endearing qualities. He has gone on record time and time again answering, when asked, why he became a writer by telling people it's what he was made to do. This is very apparent here in his introduction, uh, which can be found on page 3 of the paperback edition. Luckily for me, and believe me when I say that I have led an extremely lucky life in more ways than this one, my work was also my joy. I was knocking myself out with most of those stories, having a blast. They came one after another, like the hits from the AM rock radio station that was always playing in the combination study and laundry room where I wrote them. I wrote them fast and hard, rarely looking back after the second rewrite, and it never crossed my mind to wonder where they were coming from or how the structure of a good short story differed from the structure of a novel or how one manages um, issues of character development, backstory, and time frame. I was flying entirely by the seat of my pants, running on nothing but intuition and a kid's self-confidence. All I cared about was that they were coming. That's all that I had to care about. 
Certainly it never occurred to me that writing short stories is a fragile craft, one that can be forgotten if it isn't used almost constantly. It didn't feel fragile to me then. Most of those stories felt like bulldozers. Many best-selling novelists in America don't write short stories. I doubt if it's a money issue. Financially successful writers don't need to think about that part of it. It might be that when the world of the full-time novelist shrinks to below, say, 70,000 words, a kind of creative claustrophobia sets in. Or maybe it's just that knack of miniaturization that gets lost along the way. There are lots of things in life that are like riding a bike, but writing short stories isn't one of them. You can forget how. During the late 80s and 90s, I wrote fewer and fewer stories, and the ones I did write were longer and longer, and there are a couple of the longer ones in this book, but that was okay. But there were also short stories I wasn't writing because I had some novel or other to finish, and that wasn't so okay. I could feel those ideas in the back of my head crying to be written. Some eventually were, others, I'm sad to say, died and blew away like dust. Worst of all, there were stories I no longer knew how to write, and that was dismaying. I knew I could have written them in that laundry room on Tabby's little portable, but as a much older man, even with my craft more honed and my tools, this Macintosh I'm writing on tonight, for instance, much more pricey, those stories were eluding me. I remember messing one up and thinking of an aging sword maker, looking helplessly at a fine Toledo blade and musing, I used to know how to make this stuff. King has often spoken of the importance of reading. For him, it's just as essential as writing. And the two go hand in hand, which explains why he rediscovered the ability to write short stories. He places the importance on the authors that he reads. Now think about that. Stephen King, THE Stephen King, rediscovering purpose in short story authors. How humbling is that? How inspiring? In all of the decades in which he has ruled the upper echelon of authors, he never treats himself differently than the fledgling writer pumping out short story after short story while trying to pay the bills. Then one day, three or four years ago, he writes, I got a letter from Katrina Kennison, who edited the annual Best American Short Stories. Mrs. Kennison asked if I'd be interested in editing the 2006 volume. I didn't need to sleep on it or even think it over for an afternoon walk. I said yes immediately, for all sorts of reasons, some even altruistic, but I would be a black liar indeed if I didn't admit self-interest played a part. I thought if I read enough short fiction, immersed myself in the best American literary magazines had to offer, I might be able to recapture some of the effortlessness that had been slipping away. Not because I needed those checks, small but very welcome when you're just starting out to buy a new muffler for a used car or a birthday present for my wife, but because I didn't see losing my ability to write short stories as a fair exchange for a wallet load of credit cards. I read hundreds of stories during my year as guest editor, but I won't go into that here. If you're interested, buy the book and read the introduction. You'll also be treating yourself to 20 swell short stories, which is no poke in the eye with a sharp stick. The important thing is it affects the stories that follow, is that I got all excited all over again, and I started writing stories again in the old way. I had hoped for that, but hardly dared believe it would happen. The first of those new stories was Willa, which is also the first story in the book. Are these stories any good? I hope so. Will they help you pass a dull airplane flight if you're reading or a long car trip if you're listening on CD? I really hope so, because when that happens, it's a kind of magic spell. I loved writing these. I know that. And I hope you like reading them. I know that too. I hope they take you away, and as long as I remember how to do it, I'll keep at it. Oh, and one more thing. I know that some readers like to hear something about how or why certain stories came to be written. If you're one of those people, you'll find my liner notes at the back. But if you go there before you read the stories themselves, then shame on you. And now, let me get out of your way. But before I go, I want to thank you for coming. Would I still do what I do if you didn't? Yeah, indeed I would. Because it makes me happy when the words fall together and the picture comes and the make-believe people do things that delight me. But it's better with you, constant reader. Always better with you. <laughs> I mean, and that's why he is Stephen King. It's as simple as that. All right, guys. Now for my review of uh, the first story that I'm going to review here, uh, Gingerbread Girl. So from Wikipedia. After her only daughter, Amy, suffers a crib death, Emily takes up running as a way to deal with her pain. She believes that only fast running will do. She pushes her body to its limits often vomiting and sweating profusely. Her husband, Henry, finds out about this habit and treats it as a psychological reaction to grief. 
Emily is hurt and runs out of the house down to a local Holiday Inn. She contacts her father and explains her situation. After their conversation, Emily decides to stay in her father's summer home near Naples, Florida. She also speaks with Henry, and the two agree that a trial separation is a good idea. Emily's life becomes quite simple. She eats plain meals and runs for miles every day. As her body shrinks, she, she gets to know a few people that hover around the island. Vermilion Key is mostly devoid of tourists. The only person Emily regularly visits is Deke Hollis, an old friend of her father who runs the drawbridge on the island. During a chance meeting, Hollis tells Emily that Jim Pickering, one of the men who owns a home on the island, is back. He has brought along a niece, Hollis's polite name for the young women Pickering lures to his home. Emily prepares to continue, but Hollis warns her that Pickering is not a very nice man. As Emily continues her daily run, she notices a shiny red car outside a McMansion along the beach that she deduces belongs to Pickering. When Emily approaches the car and discovers a woman whose throat has been slashed, she is knocked unconscious. She wakes up to find herself inside Pickering's house and confined on a kitchen chair with duct tape. Emily realizes that Pickering is insane and hints that she let someone know where she was going. When Pickering presses her for details, Emily blurts out Deke Hollis's name. Pickering leaves, presumably to murder the old man. Emily knows that she does not have much time and hears her father's voice in her head giving her advice. She uses her strong legs to splinter the duct tape and free her lower body. She looks for a knife to release her arms, but settles on the corner of the island in the middle of the kitchen. Now freed, Emily attacks Pickering when he returns. After temporarily knocking him out, Emily escapes from his house and makes it to the beach. She hears Pickering behind her and realizes, in a rather odd coincidence, that she has been training for this moment. Though exhausted from her imprisonment, Emily's months of running serve her well. She keeps well ahead of Pickering, who is now armed with scissors. She encounters a young Latino man on the beach and begs for help, but he does not understand her cries. Pickering appears and tries to use Spanish to convince the man that Emily is with him, but Emily's fearful expression convinces the young man otherwise. He pushes Emily behind him, incensed. Pickering brutally slaughters the man with the scissors. Emily, tiring, quickly runs into the ocean. Pickering follows her, but begins to flounder. Emily gasps as she figures out what is happening. Pickering cannot swim. Emily manages to escape him and sits on the shoreline to watch as Pickering drowns. When he finally goes under, Emily tells herself that a shark or some other creature attacked him. She wonders why and guesses that it's part of the human condition. Her long ordeal is over and Emily stands and shouts at the birds flying about and prepares to go home. Analysis. Uh... Well, they say that the first line is always important, and the opening line here tells us all we need to know. After the baby died, Emily took up running. And King begins to craft a story, one of the longer ones in this collection, of duality and contradiction, of a heavy subject, the death of a child and the crumbling of a marriage, with the breezy obsession of running. Watching the marriage fall apart around the memory of their deceased daughter is painful, but since this is coming from the man who brought us pet cemetery, we shouldn't be surprised. Just as King begins to sketch out the life of Emily uh, as she begins to live her life in Florida, he turns it on a dime. It's fitting, as Emily is defined by her running, sprinting from point A to point B. So it should come as no shock to any of us that King sprints into the turn, which changes the story from a meditative tale of mourning to a psychological thriller or a slasher movie. Take your pick. We hear of Pickering and boom! Immediately, Emily discovers the dead girl in the car. There's no time to breathe between these two plot points. It's fitting, as the framework of this novel is familiar in the sense that a Stephen King character heads to Florida to recuperate and start over after terrible tragedy and death of a marriage. In Dumaki, Edgar walked. That walking allowed for a slower pace for the plot to reveal itself. Here, Emily runs, so the plot should be rushing up at us a lot quicker. Emily soon becomes his prisoner, and because it happens so fast, we're just as surprised as she is. We didn't expect this so soon. And King knows what kind of story Emily has found herself in, so he begins to crank up Pickering's insanity and draws up a thunderstorm to boom outside. Though she remains motionless, King ratchets up the tension by leaving her duct taped alone while Pickering is out. We know that she's going to have to escape. The question is how? She has to break the chair, and though she's nearly immobilized, she's still racing against time. 
to get out of her confinement before Pickering returns, which she manages to do just as he comes back. The battle begins, and she fights for her life, ultimately jumping out of the window into the open world. The subsequent chase along the beach is beautifully rendered, with King at his descriptive best. It's astonishing how well he manages to marry the horrific with the beautiful. To make a long story short, she succeeds in drowning him, and that's that. It's a good story, and I don't know if it means anything, which is fine. I suppose you can extrapolate meaning from the fact that she beats him by running into the ocean, the symbol of life, that he is swallowed by life itself. Other than that, it's a well-told tale of grief and triumph. So Stephen Kingisms, we got a couple here. Psychopaths, with the last name Pickering. Uh, in Insomnia, Charlie Pickering almost killed Ralph, and here we have Jim Pickering. Number two is the apotheosis. At one point, Emily discusses the apotheosis of Henry's essence, and this is a, a phrase that King loves uh, using. Most famously, I believe he used it in the Gunslinger, where the desert was the apotheosis of all deserts. And he also used it again in It for the last day of school, where the last day of school in the loser's childhood was the apotheosis of the last day of school. Um, and as I mentioned already, uh, starting over in Florida after a tragedy and the death of a marriage, which we have recently seen in the pages of Duma Key. All right, um, so up next is N, and I probably should have uh, saved this one for last, but I'll just, I'll do it now. So N, Wikipedia. Um, so in N, a woman named Sheila writes to her childhood friend Charlie about her brother Johnny, a psychiatrist who recently committed suicide. Sheila suspects that it was due to a patient Johnny referred to in his notes as uh, N. In the inner circle of the narrative, N is diagnosed by John Bonsaint as suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder and paranoid delusions related to keeping balance. N has been convinced that a circle of stones in a field on the outskirts of a nearby town, Ackerman's Field, contains a potential doorway to another reality where a terrifying monster, repeatedly said to be a helmet-headed being named Cthun, is trying to break through. A warning sign of the monster's imminent penetration, best described as a place where the walls between realities are thin or perhaps breaking down, is when a person viewing the field sees seven stones when in fact there are eight. N's belief, shared by those who came before him, is that verifying the presence of eight stones when he is in the field and his obsession with order when he is absent somehow strengthens the barrier between our world and the one Cthun dwells in. But that is a perpetual and exhausting struggle. N's obsession eventually leads to his death by suicide, despite Johnny's best efforts. Following a mysterious compulsion, Johnny goes out to the field to see the stones for himself. He begins to suspect that N might not have been delusional after all when he suffers from the same symptoms as his patient. Most notable are his obsession with the numbers. Odd numbers are bad, especially prime ones. Even ones are safe, especially if they have a lot of factors and if the sum of their digits is also even. The effect recedes as winter sets in since the level of danger seems to be synchronized with the solstices. Winter is safest, summer is most dangerous. However, as June approaches, Johnny is driven to madness and finally kills himself. A newspaper clipping reveals Sheila's fate. After she read her brother's manuscript, she jumped from a bridge near Ackerman's field and killed herself in a manner identical to her brother. A copy of an email indicates that Charlie intended to visit the field in Maine. Okay, guys, uh, so here's my relationship with N. Um, this is a novel, or sorry, this is a short story that I hold in the, the highest regard. You know, for a, for a, an upcoming episode, you know what I might what I might do? I've started to assemble some lists of, of top 10, you know, top 10 Stephen King villains, top 10 Stephen King heroes, stuff like that. I might do Stephen King's top 10 short stories because I want to see how high I place N on that list and whether or not I place it as number one because there's something about this short story that really speaks to me. And it might not be fair to his other short stories because my first impressions of N came about not from Stephen King himself, but from the motion comic that Marvel produced uh, leading up to the publication of Just After Sunset. It was a brilliant move that was coming around the same time when Marvel announced their partnership with Stephen King 
uh, to produce the the Dark Tower comic books. So the fact that they had just partnered with Stephen King, you know, why not, you know, kind of scratch each other's backs and, you know, see what they could do in terms of just getting their product and getting their brand out there. And what they did was brilliant. And I don't know if it was every week. I don't know if it was every day, but um, Marvel wound up releasing these uh, installments, these two minute long, one, one and a half minute long installments, let's say every day or every week leading up to the publication of Just After Sunset of N, um, this great adaptation of N, which to me is one of Stephen King's best adaptations in any medium. And just getting this kind of Dickensian uh, publication and installment, this story being just given out, you know, day after day or week after week, whatever it was, in these short little increments it it forced um, I believe it was Mark Guggenheim who was the uh, the, the writer who adapted it and Alex Maleev who uh, who who illustrated it 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 forced them to really think of the best way to deliver this story and really sell us on the threat of the stones and Cthulhu and the obsession of of counting and ordering and placing everything in an order to keep back this monstrous alien evil. So they really needed to sell the tone, and man, are they effective um, in in selling this tone. So if you haven't read N, you should. And if you have read N and you have not seen the motion comic, just head on over to YouTube. They have it in its entirety, all 28 minutes of it. And I think that you're going to see what I'm talking about here. And just as a, as a taste, I'm going to play the, uh, the first episode, which is about two minutes long. And I just want you to really listen to the sound design that's here because the sound really, really helps to make you unsettled. Um, so I'm just going to step out of the way. I'm going to let uh, the masters here do their thing, and 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 then I'll, I'll pick back up. Dear Charlie, it seems both strange and perfectly natural to call you that. Although when I last saw you, I was nearly half the age I am now, and you weren't a preeminent medical expert. Thank you for your note after Johnny's death. Accidental death can cover a multitude of sins, but I know it was suicide. As a doctor yourself, you know psychiatrists like Johnny have an extremely high rate of it. But I think, and this gets me to the material I'm enclosing with this letter, I think Johnny's suicide was caused, prompted, by a particular patient. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm enclosing what I found in Johnny's personal effects. This box. The handwriting, burn this, is Johnny's and, well, I didn't listen. Like Pandora, my curiosity got the better of me and I opened it. I wish I hadn't. So I don't know how, how you react to that, but I immediately guess, get goosebumps. Now, the beginning, the, the, the first sound that you hear, um, th those are the credits, and you see Stephen King's name come up, and you see the stones, and it says Stephen King's N. But that, that deep noise, that, that almost chanting, you know, monk sort of ooh, that you hear, that is playing against the visuals of the journal and saying, burn this, and it's giving you a glimpse of the story that, that's going to come. So it just sets the danger in such an effective way. And then uh, just to, to really put us over the edge, I'm going to play one more episode um, from its adaptation. It's where N gets to the stones and 
well, you'll you'll see. But again, just what makes this work is just man. I mean, the the voice actors here. I mean, they have to be able to tell their story, and they have to be able to convey the tone, um, and they just have to they have to sell it. And tell me that this guy who is playing and tell me that he doesn't sell the shit out of this story uh, because he makes me start to get really uncomfortable uh, because he's able to sell madness and obsession and compulsion and sympathy and fear all together. This guy does a great job. I'd touch the stones. I'd touched them, and they were fixed. Seven when I looked, eight through the camera. It didn't matter. After touching them, they were fixed. I felt relieved. But but I still felt afraid. There was something wrong. Everything screamed it, even the silence of the birds. So I ran. I was most of the way back to my car. I might even have been touching the door handle when something turned me around again. And that was when I saw there was something in the middle of the stones. It was turning very slowly, but it never took its eyes off me. And it saw me. It saw me looking. And it grinned. And where there was one, there would be more. Eight stones would keep them captive. But if there were only seven, they'd come flooding from the darkness on the other side and overwhelm the world. It just, it really makes me unsettled in all, in, in the best way possible, the way that it should. So I, I guess I just wanted to, to really talk about the motion comic first, because that was my first experience with N. And again, like I said, this is, you know, when I say it's one of Stephen King's best adaptations, and this is coming from the guy that loves The Shining and loves Misery and Shawshank and, um, the Green Mile, and I think that these, and the Night Flyer, these are all really good Stephen King adaptations, and N is right up there with the rest of them. So, you don't have to spend any money on it, just go on over to YouTube and and really experience it because it's truly an unsettling and engrossing experience. It's going to take you half an hour and I, I guarantee you that you will um, you'll enjoy it. it it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful edge of your seat uncomfortable squirmy you're gonna look over your shoulder you're gonna hear noises in your house sort of experience and it's everything that you want out of Stephen King the thing with Stephen King is that the more you read of him the like the the whole strength of him is that he's familiar and he draws you in and, and he builds you into his relationship you know we are his constant reader so there's a friendliness and a safety to Stephen King but what I really enjoyed about N and the experience of, of watching N was that I didn't feel safe. And I didn't feel as though friendly Stephen King was telling me a story. I felt in danger as I was experiencing it. So if you want that, then then go out to YouTube. Just type in Stephen King's N and and uh, it'll come up. Um, but now that I've talked about the motion comic, let's talk about the short story itself. So I... The, this this short story has such a great hook, right? Um, I mean, how do you not want to find out what is in the file uh, that that they're talking about here, beginning on on page, I believe it's two seventy two. Um, you know, like right away, they're talking. You know, she is talking about the file and to burn it and to not read it. How do you not want to find out? You know, it makes the rest of this reading experience just so delicious. And the fact that it harkens back to the first-person narrative um, provided in the form of case files and letters, it, it's like something that you would see in Dracula from H.P. Lovecraft or even Stephen King himself, specifically Jerusalem's Lot. You know, it casts a creeping dread and immediacy to the horror. He personalizes it by doing this. By reading case files and letters, we're as involved in this as the characters themselves. As if, we, as if we may soon be possessed by the urge to investigate Ackerman's Field. And what a great name, by the way, Ackerman's Field. It sounds memorable, 
um, and, and kind of both ho-hum every day at the same time, you know? Um, and I wonder if it's named after Forrest J. Ackerman, legendary horror icon. So, aside from the throwback nature to the story, King does here what he does best, and he grows a story out of a recognizable concept, in this case, OCD. He creates a horrific supernatural explanation for a virulent, contagious strain of OCD that repurposes the patient as an unfortunate hero who keeps evil at bay with the obsessive counting and cataloging. It's such a great hook and falls in line with the condition itself, whose patients believe that something bad will happen if they fail to enact their routines. King proposes that they are correct and makes you wonder if anyone suffering from this condition is battling against their own Cthulhu. The story itself unfolds naturally and never without the growing dread. From Johnny's first session with N, who references Ackerman's field and the rocks, we learn that he believes, sorry, we learn that he believes he's actively keeping things from getting worse. And though King holds off on Cthulhu and Ackerman's field for a while, he keeps things interesting with the details of N's OCD. And when N begins his story, it's captivating. The discovery of Ackerman's field is alluring to N. Rather than being filled with terror or wrongness, he's lured into Ackerman's field through enchantment and sensations from childhood. King teases the reveal of the stones with a reminder to us all from his introduction to Night Shift, his thesis for why he writes horror stories. Um, and let's see, he writes, Reality is a mystery, Dr. Bond Saint, and the everyday texture of things is the cloth we draw over it to mask its brightness and darkness. I think we cover the faces of corpses for the same reason. We see the faces of the dead as a kind of gate. It's shut against us, but we know it won't always be shut. Someday, it will swing open for each of us, and each of us someday will go through. And he continues, But there are places where the cloth gets ragged and the reality is thin. The face beneath peeps through, but not the face of a corpse. It would almost be better if it was. Ackerman's Field is one of those places, and no damn wonder whoever owns it put up a keep out sign. The day was fading. The sun was a red ball of gas, flattened at the top and bottom, sitting above the western horizon. The river was a long, bloody snake in its reflected glow, eight or ten miles distant, but the sound of it carrying to me on the still evening air. Blue-gray woods rose behind it in a series of ridges to the far horizon. I couldn't see a single house or road. Not a bird sang. It was as if I had been tumbled back four hundred years in time, or four million the first white streamers of ground mist were rising out of the hay, which was high. No one had been in there to cut it, although that was a big field and a good graze. The mist came out of the darkening green like breath, as if the earth itself was alive. I think I staggered a little. It wasn't the beauty, although it was beautiful. It was how everything that lay before me seemed thin, almost to the point of hallucination. And then I saw those damned rocks rising out of the uncut hay. There were seven or so, I thought, the tallest two about five feet high, the shortest only three or so, the rest in between. I remember walking down to the closest of them, but it's like remembering a dream after it starts to decompose in the morning light. You know how they do that? Of course you do. Dreams will play a big part of your workday. Only this was no dream. I could hear the hay wickering against my pants, could feel the khaki getting damp from the mist and starting to stick to my skin below the knees. Every now and then, a bush, clumps of sumacs were growing here and there, would pull my lens back and then drop it again so it would thump harder than usual against my thigh. I got to the nearest of the rocks and stopped. It was one of the five-footers. At first, I thought there were faces carved in it. Not human faces, either the faces of beasts and monsters. But then I shifted my position a little and saw it was just a trick of the evening light, which thickens shadows and make them look like, well, like anything. 
In fact, after I stood in my new position for a while, I saw new faces. Some of these looked human, but they were just as horrible. More horrible, really. Because human's always more horrible, don't you think? Because we know human, we understand human, or we think we do. And these looked like they were either screaming or laughing. Maybe both at the same time. I thought it was the quiet screwing with my imagination and the isolation and the bigness of it. How much of the world I could see laid out in front of me. And how time seemed to be holding its breath. As if everything would stay the way it was forever with sunset not more than 40 minutes away and the sun sitting red over the horizon and the faded clarity in the air. I thought it was those things that were making me see faces where there was nothing but coincidence. I think differently now. But now it's too late. <sighs> Not only is this description so vivid, the idea that when he see these, sees these stones, that there is an eighth stone that can't be seen with the human eye is so deeply unsettling and such a great hook. And then from there, King describes the origins, excuse me, of... Uh, his OCD. I started to feel dizzy and scared. I wanted to be out of there before full dark came, away from that field, and back on Route 117 with loud rock and roll on the radio. But I couldn't just leave. Something deep inside me, as deep as the instinct that keeps us drawing in breaths and letting them out, insisted on that. I felt that if I left, something terrible would happen, and perhaps not just to me. That sense of thinness swept over me again as if the world was fragile at this particular place and one person would be enough to cause an unimaginable cataclysm if he weren't very, very careful. That's when my OCD shit started. I went from stone to stone, touching each one, counting each one, and marking each in its place. I wanted to be gone, desperately wanted to be gone, but I did it and I didn't skimp the job because I had to. I knew that the way that I know I have to keep breathing if I want to stay alive. By the time I got back to where I'd started, I was trembling and wet with sweat as well as mist and dew. Because touching those stones, it wasn't nice. It caused ideas, raised images, ugly ones. One was of chopping up my ex-wife with an axe and laughing while she screamed and raised her bloody hands to ward off the blows. But there were eight. Eight stones in Ackerman's field. A good number, a safe number, I knew that. And it no longer mattered if I looked at them through the camera's viewfinder or with my naked eyes. After touching them, they were fixed. It was getting darker. The sun was halfway over the horizon. I must have spent 20 minutes or more going around that rough circle, which was maybe 40 yards across. But I could see well enough. The air was weirdly clear. I still felt afraid. There was something wrong there. Everything screamed it. The very silence of the birds screamed it. But I felt relieved, too. The wrong had been put at least partly right by touching the stones and looking at them again. Getting their place in the field set into my mind. That was as, as important as the touching. No. More important. Because that's how we see the world that keeps the darkness beyond the world at bay keeps it from pouring in through and drowning us. I think all of us might know that way down deep. So I turned to go, and I was most of the way back to my car. I might even have been touching the door handle when something turned me around again. And that was when I saw. And then there's the doctor's notes here. He is silent for a long time. I notice he is trembling. He has broken out in a sweat. It gleams on his forehead like dew. And what I'm about to read now, you know, it, um, it's, it's what I played earlier. There was something in the middle of the stones, in the middle of the circle they made, either by chance or design. It was black like the sky in the east and green like the hay. It was turning very slowly, but it never took its eyes off me. It did have eyes, sick pink ones. I knew, my rational mind knew, that it was just the light in the sky I was seeing, but at the same time I knew it was something more. There was something that was using the light. Something that was using the sunset to see with. 
and what it was was seeing me. Um, this whole segment is one of the creepiest passages that I've ever recalled King writing. The whole thing from start to finish with the thing in the middle with human heads for teeth. Um, oh, it, it's just, it's just, ugh, I don't know. It just, it just builds and builds and builds perfectly. Now, N realizes that he has activated the stones simply by looking at them. And the counting and the cataloging is a sort of magic holding the other world at bay. It's as if the constant counting is the ultimate reinforcement of order to fight the chaos that exists within the stones. And then King gives us a monstrous vision of what would happen if he fails in his guardianship of the stones on page 318. I started having nightmares again. One night in early May, I woke on my bedroom floor screaming. In my dream, I'd seen a huge gray-black monstrosity, a winged gargoyle thing with a leathery head like a helmet. It was standing in the ruins of Portland, a thing a mile high at least and I could see wisps of clouds floating around its plated arms. There were screaming people struggling in its taloned fists, and I knew, knew, it had escaped from the standing stones in Ackerman's field. That was only the first and the least of the abominations to be released from that other world, and it was my fault because I had failed in my responsibilities. The narrative then switches from N's stories to Johnny's thoughts, who continues the story in the aftermath of N's suicide. The madness has begun to spread as we get the first glimpse that he has begun to count. He becomes the caretaker and heads towards his end as King gives us the stylistic foreshadowing as his words begin to break down as his madness grows stronger. It ultimately claims... Uh, him, then the life of his sister who follows, with her friend Charlie, to whom she is writing, emails his secretary that he's going to look into their deaths, continuing the guardianship and the subsequent insanity. Now, guys, I can't speak highly enough of this short story. It is so powerful, so palpable. You're going to start want to start doing a lot of counting yourself. You know, I mean, it's it's what he does here with. I just like that he has taken OCD. And he's given it such an importance, like I said, a, a sort of magic. And the fact that human perception is so important, it's a viewfinder in of itself, that looking at these stones activates something, and it's stored within human memory. And it's the human consciousness that has the ability to keep it back at bay. It's, he's able to take some pretty abstract concepts and make them very relatable with, with just these obsessive qualities that start to manifest themselves as as an urgent form of magic to combat evil. It's just incredible. What he does here is incredible. So I, I could talk about this for the next 40 minutes, but what I'm going to do now is just talk about the Easter eggs that are present here within this short story. So first of all is Harlow. This is the town nearby Ackerman's Field, and it's been mentioned earlier in other Stephen King stories and will be most recently seen um, in Under the Dome, which I will review next week. And speaking of which, Chester's Mill is referenced, and Chester's Mill is the, the setting for Under the Dome. Castle Rock is where N lived, and we all know Castle Rock. Uh, Lisbon Falls is mentioned, and that is the home of the rabbit hole from 1122 uh, The White. Now, this is never mentioned by name, but as N begins to make his way to Ackerman's Field for the first time, he tells us that he believes that a positive force attempted to stop him from finding the stones in Ackerman's Field. Thin reality. King has written about places where the fabric between worlds is thin. In It, in Wizard in Glass, The Black House, and others. Now, um... There is a difference, and I've made this mistake earlier in, in, in earlier episodes, but there he's written of thin places before, where that, that breakdown is very close to happening. Um, but in Wizard and Glass, he gives a very specific kind of place um, a name, and it's called a thinny. The stones are not a thinny, um, but it is a thin place. Number seven is Deadlights. 
So he doesn't specifically mention this phrase, but N does mention having a dream where he witnesses a crack in the universe and a terrible living black light comes pouring out. And that, to me, invokes the deadlights from it. And number eight, Julia Shumway and the Democrat newspaper. Um, the Democrat is the newspaper to be found in the pages of 1122, I'm sorry, uh, in Under the Dome, as we'll see next week. And Julia Shumway, the editor, um, is a major character and a very, very major character, I would say, in, in Under the Dome. So guys, go on out and, and check out um, N. You'll be uh, doing yourself a disservice if you do not. Up next is the cat from hell. A professional hitman is offered $12,000 to take out an unusual target, a cat. He accepts, despite being told that the cat was implicated in the murders of three different people. He soon discovers that the cat is much more than it seems. The employer reveals that his company tortured and destroyed thousands of cats in the name of research, and he believes that this cat is a feline emissary of revenge. While driving towards a desolate place to kill it, the cat escapes confinement and eventually attacks him, crawling inside his body to finish the job after he is temporarily paralyzed in the resulting accident. After killing the hitman, the cat leaves on unfinished business to go after the hitman's employer. Now, I included the cat from hell because I had to. This is not a new story by any means. It first saw light um, of day to mass audiences in 1990's Tales from the Dark Side. And I feel like I'd be attacked if I didn't touch it. You know, I'm getting enough flack for skipping stories and the Colorado kid to skip this one. Um, though no one's really ever said anything about me not reviewing Blaze, by the way. Um, I don't think that that book has a, a lot of love out there. Anyway, I mean, I, you know... I don't think there's much to say about The Cat from Hell, other than it's fun. And in the meme culture that we find ourselves living in, I mean, it feels like it's been written specifically after a Facebook post about Grumpy Cat, you know? And um, to me, it's the, the the way that he's able to capture The Cat from Hell. Um, I don't know. I, I, I know that Stephen King very much uh, loves his 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 dog. Um, I believe he's a dog person, but I mean, we in in this world, you're classified as either a dog person or a cat person. And this to me seems like a a short story written uh, to comment upon the cat people and how evil cats can be. You know, for instance, my wife cannot stand cats, and I grew up. Um, I had a dog growing up that I loved very much, but I had this emotional bond that I'll never have with another animal with my cat, uh, who I had referenced, uh, in an earlier, in a couple podcasts, um, Archie, his name was, he was awesome. He was awesome. And I really respect the, the independence of the cat and the, the hunter nature of the cat and why a lot of other people don't like cats. The fact that you'll just be walking your house and they'll jump out of nowhere and start attacking you that's why i like them i can understand why some people might not like that but that you never know what you're gonna get and walking through your house at any times could turn into a horror movie i love it and there's a there's a video out there i think from america's funniest home videos of just cats attacking babies which i find hilarious so yes they're monstrous little creatures but that's exactly why i love them and the uh who wrote My Dog Skip? Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, but the, the the author of My Dog Skip, which is what turned to a movie, and it's the story of his youth and his childhood dog, Skip. He wound up writing a, a memoir later in life. Um, I believe it's called um, The Cat Spit McGee. And he discusses how his entire life he has just owned dogs. And he's been a dog person his entire life. And, you know, Skip was the first dog and kind of the one to judge all other dogs. And But he's had some really good dogs over the years. And then he winds up getting remarried and his new wife has a cat. This old cantankerous thing. <laughs> Spit McGee. And he chronicles later in life as he's an older man just building this incredible relationship with this animal. And I believe that it's in this um, memoir where he, he discusses the difference between, between cats and dogs. And 
I don't know if he wrote it or if I came up with it on, on my own. I'm not sure, but I believe that he did. And he writes of how dogs, it's their nature to want to please you. That's why we love, love dogs, right? But cats don't give a shit. Okay, cats don't care if you like them or not. So when you do establish a bond with a cat, it means that much more. And uh, it just, it all of these thoughts come to mind when I read uh, A Cat from Hell because this cat really could be any cat, you know, just doing its business. Um, and it's a fun story. It's a fun story, clearly. It's very gruesome. But I think that King touches upon the, the nature of cats very, very well. In terms of Stephen Kingisms, here we have the evil cat, which we have seen before, much more famously with uh, with Church in um, in Pet Cemetery. And up next, guys, we have um, up next and up last, we have a very tight place. So from Wikipedia, Curtis Johnson, a middle-aged gay gentleman, is lured to a deserted construction site by his neighbor Tim Grunwald, with whom he's been having a legal dispute involving Curtis's beloved dog, Betsy, who was killed by Tim's electric fences. He is confronted by Tim, who forces him into a portable toilet, locks him in, then tips it over, leaving him trapped there in the heat of a Florida summer day to die. With no way to get help, Curtis must figure out how to escape or die. Eventually, after a long night asleep in the Porto San, Curtis discovers he can crawl through the toilet and into the tank where he can unscrew the bolts using Betsy's old dog tag. After a brief struggle, he gets out and makes his way to Tim's house, who was lounging in his hot tub. Curtis then surprises Tim by throwing an old unplugged hair dryer into the tub. He then jumps into the hot tub with him, letting him know that not only is he alive, but if Tim ever tells anyone, Curtis will simply tell them that Kim, Tim tried to kill him first. Two days later, Curtis hears a gunshot from Tim's house and figures Tim killed himself and continues to work. He then tells his maid that he's thinking of getting a new dog. Analysis. This is a fun story. It's built up steadily. For instance, King refers to how Curtis misses Betsy, and I think that we all immediately assume that it's his wife, not his dog. That's revealed that it's white, that it's his dog. It kind of takes on, I don't want to say a, a lesser, I don't want to say that the stakes are lowered, but it. Uh, I think that the swerve allows for some humor to be had in, in the story because you have to be able to laugh. You have to be able to laugh while you read this or else you're just going to throw up everywhere. Um... I mean, but basically what it all comes down to is the showdown between the two developers. And once Curtis goes in the Porto Potty, it is an incredibly tense wait before it tumbles over. And it's what we've both been waiting and dreading for. And King gives it to us on page 484. Um, his teeth snap shut on his tongue. The back of his head connected with the door and he saw stars. The lid of the toilet opened like a mouth. Brown-black fluid, thick as syrup, vomited out. A decomposing turd landed on his crotch. Curtis gave a cry of revulsion, batted it aside, then wiped his hand on his shirt, leaving a brown stain. A vile creek was spilling out of the gaping toilet seat. It ran down the side of the bench seat and pooled around his sneakers. A Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper floated in it. Streamers of toilet paper hung out of the toilet's mouth. It looked like New Year's Eve in hell. This... <laughs> absolutely could not be happening. It was a nightmare left over from childhood. Um, Curtis's back was wet too. He realized that the Porto sand must have landed in or just bridged the water-filled ditch. Water was seeping in through the holes in the door. Uh, it, so, I mean, after an eternity in the toilet, he makes his way into the tank, and with the help of his dead dog's tags, he unscrews a seam, allowing King to write a childbirth scene with a fully grown man clawing his way out of a porta potty And his revenge is just, you know, I mean, he tarnishes his enemy's own sacred place, the hot tub, by jumping in, being covered in an excrement and that blue stuff that's in the porta sand. So, I mean, this entire time, I just can't help but feel as though Stephen King was cackling madly to himself. Um, it's a disgusting little story, but it's fun. It's a fun, it's a fun, fun story to read. And I, I, again, it's Stephen King writing about everyday, everyday things. And he turns these everyday things into something just terrifying. All right. Who wants to get trapped in a porta potty? Not me, not this guy. And so he takes that what if, and he spins an incredibly fun yarn out of it. So I strongly recommend it. So I'm sorry, guys, that's all that I have this week. This isn't to say that there aren't other stories in here worth reading. Um, 
because I'm sure that there are. Um, it's just that I, I didn't want to touch them just now. And uh, doesn't mean that I won't someday. I very well may um, because, to be perfectly honest, um, before I sat down to uh, record this particular review, I picked up Dr. Sleep and began rereading that which means that in terms of the, the books that I have to reread in order to catch up to the, the um, most recent publication, all I have to do after I finish Dr. Sleep is read Mr. Mercedes, Joyland, and the what, Finders Keepers. And then, then I'm caught up because I've, I've read Revival and I just finished The Bizarre of Bad Dreams. So I'm, I've almost finished the mission statement of, of the Stephen King cast. Which doesn't mean that there isn't stuff that I, I need to do. Um, so which would allow for me to go back to the short story collections and, and review some more short stories that I never got to for the first time around. So if there's a story in Just After Sunset that you want me to, to tackle, then write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. I can't promise anything, but it'll definitely make me it'll definitely point me in the right direction. Okay, guys. So with this review done, next week what I'm going to do, um, we're going to join ourselves uh, again, and we are going to step into a small town and seal ourselves off from the outside world with Stephen King's 1,000-plus page examination of small towns um, and the, the crises that, that, that can rain upon a small town. Um, and there's so much that he, he has to say about the nature of small towns and the relationship with the outside world with the magnificent under the dome. And I know that Brett, whose email that I read earlier <laughs> in this episode is probably screaming at, at, uh, at the podcast right now, but I'm sorry, as you'll see in my review next week, I think that Stephen King really, really constructed a masterpiece here. Um, which is, you need to separate what he did with what CBS wound up doing uh, with with the terrible adaptation. I'm sorry for anyone that happens to like it. I, I just can't get behind that. But anyway, um, love under the dome. Can't wait for next week. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King. No, wait, that's not how I end it, right? No, it's, um, it's maybe have long days and pleasant nights. Let's try it again. Okay, so... Um, May you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King.